hear me? We can. Yes, we can hear you perfectly. Great, great. Thank you. I want to thank you and Pax for um, inviting me to share tonight. I was, um, I haven't said it, my name's Derek Bell, and I'm definitely an alcoholic and a sober active member uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was want to start by saying that um, you all may get absolutely nothing <laughs> at all of what I have to share tonight, but, um, but um, I'm going to have a chance to relive the horrors of my alcoholism, uh, both uh, sober <laughs> and when I was drinking. Um, and, uh, and when I go home tonight, <laughs> after I go to my home group meeting tonight at the local detox and I put my head on the pillow, I'm going to be profoundly grateful uh, that I don't act in those ways anymore and that I'm sober. So having said that, I want to uh, begin by thanking uh, Chuck D. He's uh, one of the patriarchs of my home group, uh, the Gators in, uh, in uh, Southern California. And I was whining to him a couple of weeks ago that, uh, you know, when am I going to get a chance to tell my story? And, uh, or, you know, I miss live meetings and <laughs> be careful what you whine about in front of an old timer because <laughs> you will be talking to folks um, in, in uh, I assume this is the United Kingdom. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, I'm just, I'm grateful here to, to have a chance to be able to talk a little bit about um, how Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life. So um, as we do, uh, we talk about what it was like know, when we were drinking and uh, having fun, and then um, um, what happened? You know, what was the event that uh, drove me into Alcoholics Anonymous? And then what it's like now? And in a perfect world, you know, a little bit about what it was like, and then what happened, and mostly what it's like now. If you're new, and it's your first time speaking, you know, it'll be what it was like, what it was like, and what it was like with a tiny bit of, <laughs> of sobriety on the end. But um, in my particular case, um, I had a pretty normal childhood until I was 12 years old and, um, my parents got divorced and I, um, my dad like took off. And so, um, I remember maybe I was like 13 or something like that. And my dad came to me cause he had, um, he had, uh, knew my mom had a severe problem with drinking. That's why, uh, you know, that's why he left. And, um, he said to me, um, Hey, look, um, if you don't touch any alcohol or any other um, chemicals um, until you're 18, I'll buy you a brand new BMW. And uh, I thought, gee, you know, I was a teenager. I thought that sounds great. And that lasted for about two weeks <laughs> until uh, one of my friends or mates uh, said to me, hey, would you like to go, you know, do some of this stuff over here? I said, that'd be great. And I remember um, we went and got, you know, like two two beers each or something like that of some old English 800. Not that that would make any sense, but that was the name of it. And I remember drinking those and getting on my bicycle and riding around. And I can tell you, I, I felt freedom, right? I felt like all the problems that I had had, whatever they were real or imagined, I feel that they were lifted. And for the first time, I had a little bit of joy in my life. And so, um, you know, I, I I went along doing that. Uh, you know, I have a profound uh, respect for Alcoholics Anonymous. When I came in, I was a drug addict, addict. And uh, after I'd been here for a while, I became uh, an ANDA, which is a drug addict, ANDA, alcoholic, right? And then after I'd been here for a little bit longer, I became just a regular alcoholic. And what I learned in that journey was that as long as I was an addict and was different, then I didn't have to work your stupid steps and didn't have to get sober. But if I just became a regular alcoholic, then um, you know I, I could join Alcoholics Anonymous and be a part um, of the program and uh, and just and do your uh, do what we do around here, which is uh, play follow the leader, in my opinion. So um, I'm busy in you know junior high school, you know getting loaded, not really interested. I I ran away from home when I was 15 years old. I said, I'm out of here. I can't take this alcoholism anymore and split and got on my little motorcycle and drove, you know, 50 miles north and showed up on my father's doorstep. He was, you know, busy uh, playing tennis and going to the Playboy Mansion and doing whatever he was doing. He was he didn't want me in his life, but I showed up on his doorstep and I said, either you take me in or uh, or I'm going to go live on the street because I can't I can't live uh, with my mother who's drinking. And so he took me in and 
tried to give me some good advice at 16 or 17 years of age. He said, you know, just try and stay away from the bad kids. <laughs> well, I already had the disease of alcoholism in full uh, swing. He didn't know that. And so I was one of the bad kids. And I remember I uh, became uh, kind of silly admitting these things on recorded meetings. I mean, <laughs> how many people are going to jail because of COVID and Zoom? Um, I can remember uh, you know, him you know, saying, stay away from these people. Well, I became the drug dealer for the high school. And I remember uh, you know, uh, one, uh, when I was about 17 years of age, I remember I was on cocaine, um, alcohol and marijuana and coming home and I totaled my car um, and uh, that was just a normal day for me. I graduated high school with a 1.9. One of the teachers, um, which is like a, uh, I guess it's a D plus. And uh, one of the teachers said uh, to me, he said, you know, you're really lucky that I even graduated you. Um, and uh, my dad came to me and said, look, uh, if you can figure out how to support yourself for a summer, um, you know, I'll pay for your college. So I went and, um, you know, did my best to, uh, support myself. I got a job uh, that summer. And, uh, and so I was able to go to school and I, I pulled myself together a little bit and I got some decent grades because I was on my own, I realized, and um, got accepted to a pretty good school. Unfortunately, my disease had been doing push-ups, And um, I, uh, when I was, let me back up for a second. When I was about 16 years of age, I was in an apartment um, partying and somebody gave me um, and again, I have a profound respect um, for Alcoholics Anonymous. So when I talk about um, a white powdered form of alcohol, I, I really want to talk about how important um, uh, singleness of purpose is because, um, you know, um, there's been over the years, um, several fellowships that have emerged like the Washingtonian and, and the Oxford group, and they lost their, they tried to be everything to everybody. And there's an old saying, if you, if you uh, try and please everybody, you please no one. And those fellowships failed. And for ever since, you know, human beings first figured out how to crush grapes <laughs> and get loaded, um, there's always been, you know, the person sitting over by the water fountain in the middle of town, you know, with their hat, you know, saying, can you borrow a couple of, can I borrow a little bit? And, uh, and uh, I think God finally said, you know, I'm done with all of you. Here's Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I have a profound respect for that. And I have seen in meetings where someone will introduce themselves as a drug addict and uh, old timers will chase them out of the meeting room or whatever. So um, it's just um, the singleness of purpose is so important because um, I want to make sure that Alcoholics Anonymous is there um, for the next person that comes down the road and that we don't disband trying to be everything to everybody. Um, and uh, I think as I was saying, I was in this apartment and um, I took uh, some of this stuff that this person had given me and it was a white powdered, white powdered form of alcohol. And um, I'll tell you, I, I did a third step right there in that apartment that night. It was the most incredible feeling I've ever had. It was like, it was glee. It was true glee. It was like, um, like the first baseball hit I ever had or the first girl I ever kissed all wrapped up into one thing. And I just turned my life over to that. And uh, from the time when I was about 16 until I got sober when I was 22 years of age, um, it's pretty much, um, I, I, it, was, it was everything that I did. I turned my will and my life over to it. And um, I got into a good school and um, I was in pretty bad shape at about 20 years of age. And I, um, I remember that I, I stole some checks from the university and uh, committed grand theft and um, got in with this person who uh, was uh, dealing that particular type of stuff and uh, I couldn't pay him. And uh, he came over to me one night and he said, uh, look, I won't kill you, but the people that I get my stuff from, you know, will. And so I went to my dad and I said, you know, I have a small uh, non-habit form. I have a small problem with non-habit forming uh, uh, cocaine. And he said, uh, gee, I'm really sorry to hear that, but you're going to have to, um, you know, do what your mom did, basically throw herself off a two-story building uh, to try and get sober. And uh, we talk about hitting bottom in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what my father had said to me. So what does my brain tell me as I, uh, I knew that the stuff that I was interested in was selling for a lot less money in Miami Beach and than it was in Los Angeles. And so I bought a one-way plane ticket you know, across the United States of America uh, to kind of eat 
and die kind of on the discount program. So I, I landed in Miami Beach. I didn't know anybody at all. Um, and, um, you know, that's where I really got into a lot of trouble. I, um, I remember I, I got thrown in uh, Dade County Stockade um, for 10 days. Um, at, at one point, um, I was living in an apartment building and they were stealing the air conditioning units um, out of the windows uh, for scrap. Uh, it, I got to the point where I didn't, I had an option whether to move in with a regular prostitute or a transvestite prostitute. I won't tell you which one I picked on um, different meeting, different 12-step program that share. Um, but um, I, uh, I remember um, walking down the beach uh, one day. I had no place to live. I had no food. I had no money. I had nothing. And uh, I walked up to this young lady and I said, you know, will you please take care of me? And she said, you know, sure. She was a University of Florida student on vacation. And uh, she said, um, you know, okay. And because um, I really um, needed a mommy. <laughs> I really needed somebody to take care of me because I was spending all my money on drinking and doing that other stuff. And, um, and so, um, you know, I convinced her, I lied to her parents and told her parents that I was a UCLA graduate in computer science and convinced them to let me take her down to the Virgin Islands on some kind of, you know, party expedition or whatever. And uh, we had a nice time that summer when she was paying for everything, but then it was time for her to go back to school. And I was like, you know, glad she's out of here. Now I can really have some fun. And uh, unfortunately, I uh, went into an alley um, where there was some uh, gangbangers selling stuff, and uh, I put the money in the wrong hand, and a gigantic, um, you, know, uh, you know, fight broke out, and I started running. And um, uh, the next thing I know is I got hit in the side of the head and fell down um, in this back alley. And I wasn't a stupid alcoholic. I brought a big, heavy set guy with me. <laughs> I thought there might be a problem. And, uh, and I guess the guy that hit me, um, you know, wanted his stuff back. Um, and uh, he pulled out a knife and he was going to stab me. And this guy stepped between me and him. I was just thinking about this last night. A uh, guy stepped between me and him and said, uh, look, you don't want to kill this guy over, over, you know, a $10, you know, sample or whatever. And uh, when I went back to the youth hostel that night, this has been 33, 34 years ago. Um, I, uh, I looked in the mirror and I had a huge gash on the side, uh, over my right eye. And I thought that was the first time I thought I might have a small problem <laughs> after that whole entire story. That's, uh, that's the first time I thought, you know, I might have a, a, a tiny uh, problem. And I, uh, I was looking for places to stay uh, down there. Uh, this was in the Virgin Islands, Charlotte, Amalia, um, in the uh, United States, Virgin Islands, St. Thomas uh, in the summer of 1986. And uh, excuse me, 1987. And um, I was listening to, I was going around to the marinas and I was trying to find a place to stay. Now, back in those days, um, Marvin Hagler had just fought Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler had just lost. And I was in this little marina down there where Marvin Hagler flew down. And I, I was going and asking all the yacht captains if I could stay on their boats and they wouldn't. And the harbor master finally gave me permission to. Um, to sleep on this old abandoned boat. And it was, uh, my job was to bail it out because it was sinking and the curtains were all tattered and it was lightning storms. It was just, it was, it was horrible. And um, I remember I, uh, I paid him back by sinking um, that skiff and then uh, skipping town. But I was going from dock to dock to dock to dock. And, uh, you know, I, I see how God has been in my life my entire time, all these years, even though um, I've denied his existence, I've, I've railed against him, I've bitten the heads off toothbrushes, I've screamed at him, I've told him he doesn't exist, and, uh, but he's continued to, to, to weave this fabric of my life, whether I believe it or not. And um, so I end up getting out of there, and I go back to Northern Florida. I'm reunited with this girl and I'm not ready to get sober yet, but I want to talk about a story that I heard. This was probably about a year ago at one of my local home groups. A speaker came. I was listening to him. Now, I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for 32 years. I've not been sober that long. My sobriety date is 5-20-18, um, um, but um, I'll talk more about my relapses 
throughout the story, but I want to talk about this speaker that I heard because I sat in the audience and he told this story about how he was the cocaine kingpin in, of St. Thomas uh, in the summer of 1987 and uh, how a young man had approached him um, on his boat and asked him if he could stay on his boat. And, um, and he said, sure. And the young kid turned to him and said, is there anything I need to know? And this speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous said no and went and got on a plane and took off and let this kid stay on his boat. And when he came back, um, there was police everywhere because a local rival gang had come on his boat and uh, mistaken this young kid that could very easily have been me for him and hacked him into pieces and chopped and killed him and threw him over the side of the boat. Now, why that wasn't me, I have no idea because there wasn't a lot, wasn't, I could have very easily been me. But um, that's the, Norm Alpe is an old timer. He's been dead many years. He just talked about inches and seconds. Isn't it great that I, I didn't get what I deserved um, throughout all these years? And uh, Norm Alpe would talk about that and uh, it really is inches and seconds. Uh, many times, uh, certainly in my life. So um, how long have I been going now, Claire? I want to make sure I get sober at some point. 16 minutes. Thank you. Um, so um, so I land in Northern Florida. I don't know anybody whatsoever. I'm a native Southern California, and I might as well have been overseas. And um, I, uh, I land there, and her friend is trying to teach me how to quit drinking by using marijuana. <laughs> which is an easily failed experiment. And if you're here, if this is the only meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous you ever attend, I hope you hear the language of the heart. I hope you hear recovery. I hope you hear the miracle of people um, crawling out of dumpsters. And the next thing you know, they have a white picket fence and 2.5 kids and they're reunited with their families, if that's your ideal or whatever. But this is really the place. I don't, um, I don't um, think that miracles happen. I expect them to happen. I see them around here. And, um, and uh, for me to be in a position to be able to work the steps, I don't take anything that affects me from the neck up. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not talking about prescribed medication, but I'm talking about marijuana maintenance or, um, you know, um, I don't, uh, I don't drink, but um, uh, the number one alcoholic cold reliever is NyQuil. It's like 40 proof, <laughs> you know, all those kinds of games. To be sober is to be sober is to be sober. And I guess if you were to join Alcoholic Synonymous today, you might cut back on your cocaine and crack, you know, to be in a position to be able to work the steps. But um, I know that um, those experiments failed and I landed in a detox for the first time at 22 years of age, 3,000 miles from home. My family didn't know where I was and um, I got, spent a week there, got out. My girlfriend came to pick me up and she said, well, now that you're off that, you know, uh, Peruvian marching powder, let's go get a drink. And uh, obviously that experiment failed. I was back in that detox shortly thereafter and um, got another week. And this time they said, um, we recommend that you go to treatment. And so I, uh, they had a $5 a day dirt basketball court indigent treatment center um, in that town. And uh, I went there and they, um, there was about 30 people in that home and uh, it was not a friendly place. They would come in at uh, five o'clock in the morning with bats on the uh, metal beds and wake us up, you know, get out of bed now. Um, and uh, then they would take us and run us in uh, pretty cold temperatures around. And uh, I remember they had me write on my first step for an entire week. And I, I wrote on that and I did my very best, you know, to admit I was powerless and my life was unmanageable, right? God help those that, that go through treatment. I'm telling you, you could spend, we call it a $30,000 big book. I guess you'd call it a, a, a 15,000 uh, 15, pound big book. <laughs> In, in the United Kingdom, we call them a $30,000 big book, um, basically useless because at the end of treatment, they just say, go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I was in this treatment center and I was writing on my first step and all the, all the guys would go down to this room every day for most of the day. And they're like, you can't come to treatment. You can't come to group. You have to wait. And um, so finally, my opportunity was to go down. So I went down to group and this was uh, a horseshoe, you know, uh, half circle with the hot seat in the middle. And uh, I sat in it. I'd never been involved in anything like this before. And they asked me, you know, what are you doing here? And I said, um, well, I'm a college student on vacation. 
And they said, what? And they, uh, I said, I'm a college student on vacation. And they started screaming and yelling. And they said, you're not even capable of understanding your predicament. You're a hopeless alcoholic drug addict. And you're saying you're on vacation. And uh, they threw me out of the room. And I remember I, um, I went upstairs to my bunk and I started putting my stuff away and the house manager came and he said, uh, he said, uh, I said, I, I'm not going to make it. And he said, well, we didn't think you would, <laughs> but um, from what we understand of your story, you've been able to put a uh, week together and you haven't had that kind of length of sobriety for a long time. So um, why don't you get on your hands and knees tonight before you leave tomorrow and put your paper slippers underneath your bed and thank those little dust bunnies underneath your bed for you being able to put a week together. And um, now that's an impossible ask because um, I'm a really smart guy. And uh, I studied the blue-green allergy. I'm an ooze theorist. And uh, I knew that the first um, multicellular organism was created by a lightning strike in the blue-green oceans of Earth, you know, and uh, God was an invention of human beings. It was some caveman that looked at a lightning strike and went good like that. And that's how that was invented. And it was invented to impress humans. I was a true atheist. Stupid people believed in God. And so for me to take that act of getting on my hands and knees and tucking my paper slippers underneath there to something that I knew doesn't exist, um, I was... I must have been willing. And, uh, you know, supposedly this topic is about letting go or, or turning it over or the third step. I think the whole entire program can be reduced down to just two simple words, as, uh, as Sandy Beach said. Um, you know, he said the whole entire 12 steps, everything, every, all of our experience can be reduced down to two words, just letting, just let go. And uh, in that moment, I I took that act and I went to sleep. And the next morning I woke up and something was different. I can't describe it. I wish I could tell you that I've been sober ever since. And, and uh, I got all the cash and prizes and everything is wonderful, but um, it's just not the case. Um, and uh, I will tell you that um, again, everything in my life, I can look back and I can see how God has had his hands uh, throughout all of this. And uh, you know, one year later, there was two out of the 30 people that were in that treatment center that were still sober. I mean, I just, you had no chance of getting sober. This is back in the early eighties and I was 22 years of age. I still had my whole life in front of me. And, um, and I, and it was the, um, they started taking me into this place, this A and A club. And it, it was the little old ladies in that place. It was on the side of a state highway, much like the room that it looks like that people are in tonight. Um, in that hall. Um, and it was the little old ladies that were so kind to me. I hated men get away from me, but it was the, it was these, um, these women they are like, come over here, please tell us about your story. Tell me, tell me how horrible it was. Tell me what's, you know, how bad it is the treatment and how mean they're being to you and all that stuff. And I, I told them, and, um, I became so active in that group. I won newcomer of the year that year. <laughs> That's a joke. It doesn't exist. But um, I can remember at um, at about six months sober, um, I'd gotten out of the treatment center and I was in this. Uh, I moved in with some folks that were sober and active members. And my sponsor called me and says, meet me out on the curb in a minute. And uh, I'm coming by because he'd been taking me to meetings every night. And um, and so I, I meet him at the curb and and he was not nice. Steve, God rest his soul, uh, was not a nice man at all. And I had the ego the size of you know, the United States of America. And uh, he would say things to me like, I can't believe you're still sober. So many people so much better than you have gone back out drinking. And one time he told me to call him. And I, I remember in those days, the phone would just keep ringing and I needed to talk to him now. I remember I called and I let the phone ring like 80 or 90 times. And his wife picked up the phone screaming, said, who is this? Uh, and I said, I want to talk to my sponsor. She said, I was taking a bath. But, you know, I didn't care. I needed to talk to my sponsor, just complete detachment from any connection to what another person might, might need or, or their perspective. And uh, he came and picked me up and he took me to a junkyard. I'm like, why are you taking me to a junkyard? And uh, Steve was getting his doctorate from the University of Florida. He wore a nice ponytail. He wore a tweed coat. He wore a tie all the time. Uh, he was a classy person. Uh, he had come down, you know, sometimes old timers will come down. Sometimes uh, people 
will to get a little gratitude will come down and kind of slum with like the little clubs and stuff like that and on their silk sheet meetings and he came down there to the clubhouse one day you know just trying to get a little gratitude <laughs> and uh, one of the old timers said hey I got a live one for you and he became my sponsor that's how I picked him up so he we were at the junkyard and uh you know, he's dressed in a nice suit and he walks up to the other mechanic that's working there. And that's where Steve had come from about five or six years earlier. Steve had been a junkyard mechanic um, and now was getting his doctorate. And um, he asked the other mechanic there, he said, um, do you have any cars here? And uh, the guy said, yeah, I got this old car. He said, uh, you know, how much to fix it? And he said, "Ah, oh, you know, you just need a start. He said, he peeled off like $100 and he said, tow it to this newcomer's house. And he bought me my first car and Alcoholics Anonymous has been there for me throughout all these years, you know, and I like to joke and say, you know, if you're new and your sponsor has not bought you a car yet, you're getting ripped off, <laughs> which is absolutely not true, but I, it's better to give a resentment than to get one, and in this particular case, um, you know, that's a true story, and so we towed that thing uh, to my house, and he told me what to do, and I started, he said, I'm never taking you to another AA meeting again. <laughs> I need you to use this car to take other new companies, and he taught me a basic lesson about paying it forward, and that's what we do around here, you know, <laughs> you know for me, Oh, my, my radio station is what can I get? What can I get? What can I get? What I can I get? I was just born an extremely selfish child. Really. It's just all I can think about. I could absolutely care less about you. I'm the guy that helps you. I steal your stuff and then I help you look for it. Right. And uh, I don't know why I was that way. You know, my, my great grandfather was, was, a was a manager of a uh, cotton, you know, factory in the United Kingdom. And uh, he took his family to the circus one day and he saw the girl riding around on the horse and he just turned to his family and he said, screw you, I'm running off with the girl. <laughs> and that's kind of the genetic structure that I come from. And, uh, and um, so I, I forget what I was talking about. Anyway, I, I know I was getting sober in there at some point, but anyway, so I was talking about my sponsor. So anyway, I win the newcomer of the year award and um, and uh, they told the old timers, I took what they told me very seriously. They said no major changes in the first year. And so um, I wanted to move home. I wanted to move back to Southern California. I was 3000 miles from home. I had been reunited with my family. I was talking to them a little bit in, uh, now and they wanted me to move home. And um, I, uh, I, uh, I got a job, the story of my job and, and how I got that. It, um, was unbelievable. And I, uh, I made all these sales and this, I decided it was time to go home at about a year and a half sober. And I moved back home and I was working for this stupid paint store, this little tiny paint store. I had to beg this lady to give me a job. My job was to go get five gallon cans of, of paint and take them from the factory and deliver them to the customer. Right. And I had to beg her to give me that job. Within a year, I was running the whole thing. I was in charge. I was doing outside sales, all this stuff. And, um, and I, I asked the owner of this little paint company, I said, hey, I'm going back to Southern California. Um, is there a referral that you could give me? And he said, oh, he said, yeah, I know this guy, Nick. I used to party with him. You know, these are old people. I'm 22 years old. <laughs> these are owners of paint companies. And uh, I said, well, um, that'd be great. So I get to Southern California, I call this guy up. I said, uh, you know, hi, is uh, Nick Frizzy there? And, um, and the secretary says, just a minute. Um, she said, who may I say is calling? I said, well, this is uh, Derek Bell. I'm a friend of Joe. I don't want to use that guy's name. Um, anyway, I'm a friend of this guy. And uh, this man got on the phone, uh, Nick Frizzy, and he goes, Joe so-and-so. Oh, my gosh. He's a wonderful guy. And, da -da 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 -da. and he said, uh, how can I help you? And I said, well, I, I know this guy. And he said, I might be able to talk to you about a job. See, <laughs> If I hadn't have listened to my sponsor and taken that job and put up with these other ideas, see, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And it's called it's causing me so much misery in sobriety. You know, it's so hard to let go for whatever reason. I, I, um, um, you know, the things that I developed when I was a kid to try and make it through life, they just don't work, you know, in a 50, six-year-old body, 
you know, or in a 24 year old, you know, they just don't work. You know, Bill writes about the seven deadly sins and I'm not gonna get in this, AA is not a religious program. So if this is your first meeting ever, don't run screaming out into the street. Thing. We're going to turn you into a religious zealot. It's not going to happen. It's um, but he talks about the seven deadly sins, and they're not the seven small problems that never bothered anybody. <laughs> they're the seven deadly sins, and uh, and I I use um, lust and gluttony and envy and greed, and I I, do, I have a really strong uh, affinity for those aspects, and it's really hurt me in my life um, severely. Um, you know. There's a, you know, Bill uses the word humility 58 times in the 12 and 12. And um, I missed it. I missed it until um, my sponsor really has tried to teach me humility um, and tried to get me to let go. Um, but I, I missed it. How could you spend 32 years in Alcoholics Anonymous and miss humility? You know, in step seven, Bill writes, that humility is the foundation principle of all the steps. So like you always say to your sponsor, like what's the most important step? <laughs> well, okay, this is the most, and then of all those things, our co-founder, Bill Wilson wrote that humility is that. And I totally missed that because um, I'm not having any humility whatsoever if I'm practicing those defects because I'm using those to manage my life. And, um, I should get back. So hopefully I get sober and then drunk and then sober and then drunk and then sober again. So I can complete this in 19 minutes. So, um, so this guy, this paint owner ends up being in charge of the largest paint company in the entire Southern California. It'd be like calling the president of some company. And because I mentioned that person's name, he instantly gave me a job, <laughs> you know, with a brand new company car and all this stuff. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm, I'm in an apartment and uh, my, uh, my mom comes over one day. She's sober now. My mom just took 39 years. She came by my apartment one day and she said, you know that 80% of all men who marry marry by the time they're 25. In other words, I want grandkids. And so I'm an active sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous sponsoring guys in Laguna Beach, California in 1989. And uh, I go to my sponsor. And this is again, how God is weaving the story throughout my life. And I, I said, you know, when am I going to meet her? <laughs> and he said, um, go join a gym and she'll appear. <laughs> and I said, I'm not going to go join a gym. That's some spiritual mumbo jumbo. I'm talking to save that AA stuff for the meetings. I'm talking about the real world. <laughs> and, and he said, well, you're not allowed to whine about not having, you know, a potential wife unless you do what I say. So I think I wrote the book Winning Through Whining. But anyway, I go join a gym and one of my buddies is there working on that, you know, Mike J was there and Shannon O and, you know, cast of characters were working out. And um, and there's my high school sweetheart I hadn't seen. And I walked over to her and I would have never been married to her for 20 years if I hadn't followed my sponsor's direction, right? I would have never had that job, all those things. And I'll tell you um, that, uh, you know, I had about five years sober and I met her and, uh, you know, we move away and everything's wonderful. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I get a new sponsor and we buy a little ranch and, um, you know, I'm an active sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous again, right? I know how to move in sobriety and stay sober. It's not that difficult if you just act like a newcomer all over again, right? And um, problem was I, I hadn't dealt with my sixth and seventh step issues, which really, if you're struggling, if, if I'm struggling with six and seven, I'm really, it's a third step issue. And I had to go to Gator to hear one of your former speakers say that. His name was um, Irish um, Mike, he spoke a couple of weeks ago and uh, I was complaining about having problems with the sixth and seventh step issue. And he said, well, it's, it's a third step issue, right? <laughs> I'd missed that in 30 years, right? It's like, don't go before the miracle. <laughs> I may be the slowest learner ever. And uh, anyway, so I, um, so I get married, a wonderful Alcoholics Anonymous wedding, you know, and I go away and everything's wonderful, but I'm just, I'm, I'm still doing stuff, still engaged in behaviors as a sober, active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was uh, eating at the fabric of my 
marriage and at 10 years, um, I'm in therapy. I'm fat or fatter than I am now. And, uh, uh, doing uh, engaging in other behaviors, making my wife miserable, and uh, I have two small children at home, and we're in therapy. And the therapist says, "You know, your wife says you're fat, but I can fix that. Just take these little pills." And at ten years of sobriety, I went to my sponsor and I said, uh, "You know, they want me to take these pills." And he said, "You know, we're not doctors. You know, take them as prescribed." Well, I didn't know that was fenfen. It was half fentermine, which is speed. <laughs> and as soon as I took that first one. Uh, you know, I was absolutely just ecstatic and I knew I was in big trouble. And uh, about two weeks later, you know, I go back to him and, uh, and he goes, wow, you're really the therapist. You're really dropping a lot of weight. I said, yeah, I feel a sort of inner peace and contentment seems to permeate my entire existence. And he said, that's amazing. We don't see these kind of results this quickly normally. And I said, yeah, by the way, I, I need another prescription. <laughs> and he said, that's impossible. You know, I gave you a couple months supply. And, um, and, uh, so I, about a month later, uh, at uh, three o'clock in the morning, I'm out digging a new sprinkler irrigation system in my front yard and my wife's yelling at me, you know, um, you, are you coming to bed? And, uh, and so I, um, I, uh, woke up the next day and I, I got the big book out and I started reading to her cause she'd seen me pull guys into our little apartment and house and try and get them sober. I was an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started reading her out about the different types of alcoholics of how I was going to become a heavy drinker. And she became horrified and said, I think you need to call your sponsor. And boom, there went 10 years of sobriety. And I started over again. And that was at 32 years of age. And there isn't enough time in the world for me to talk about what it was like in my sobriety from 32 to 52. Um, but I can tell you at 10 years sober, the second time, um, I was miserable again, just where I'd been 10 years before, absolutely refusing to let go. I just can't let go. I'm telling, I just, on our coin, it says to thine own self be true. And I just can't be, I just can't, I'm blind. And I'm driven in a way to these defects of character that make me miserable and that ruin my life and that drive the people away from me that I love and I want to be with them. And um, at 10 years of sobriety, I went to one of the old timers and I said, you know, here I am again. And he said, well, you know, you could do this or you could do this. And so I went uh, back into um, uh, therapy again. And uh, this time I'm writing an inventory on lust and unbeknownst to me, my wife is going behind my back and photocopying all my most innermost thoughts on my four-step in that area of lust. And uh, I flew away on a business trip. And if you want your uh, wife's attorney to have your fifth step, <laughs> that's a very bad, very bad thing, very bad thing. I uh, get out of town and I get a phone call from her and she says, I'm divorcing you and I have your writings and, uh, you know, um, you're not welcome ever home, home again. And uh, so I'm 10 years sober. Uh, so somehow I, I fly back home and I get reinvited back into the house and I'm still going to meetings, still trying to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm incapable of letting go of this stuff. And I I go um, off to treatment again for another outside issue, and um, and I come home and try and make it work. And finally, at uh, 17 years of sobriety, I've raised two children uh, in that home, uh, sober. And my son graduates, goes off to college. My daughter graduates high school, and uh, and I'm uh, 17 years sober. And I just I just said, screw you, God. It's clear I've devoted 27 years of my life to doing my best to do this program, right? To help people, right? To get out of self. And, uh, you know, when we say, uh, God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. <laughs> that answer, even today is still, I got nothing for you. <laughs> you know, take away the things that you need to take away so that I can be of maximum benefit. You know, if you're here tonight and you've got stuff that's driving you crazy that won't go away, <laughs> I might be, my experience is that, that to be humbled, to have humility, to really realize that you're completely and totally powerless might be the point of the exercise, you know. <laughs> you know, 
One of our old timers said one time, and I apologize for crying. Um, one of our old timers said one time that he, he thinks this whole exercise is about, and I mean, our whole exercise in existence is, um, is to put us in a position where we crawl up on our father's knee or mother's knee or ocean's knee or doorknob's knee or whatever your higher power's knee is, right? Whatever metaphor you want to use and just say this world's too much. I can't take it. And I think that's the humility that I experienced when I gave up, you know, alcohol and drugs at 22 years of age. And again, you know, um, at 10 years sober, right? Um, and then, um, and now again, I'll, I'll talk about getting sober again. So um, at 27 years in the program, 17 years sober this time, I, um, I, I just checked out. I, um, I said, AA clearly doesn't work. I had some business endeavors. I had to fly over and work over in Switzerland. So I got to get away from all my program and I stopped going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Uh, and I was active enough that I was able to stay sober for two years. And uh, I just want to check the time. Good, I have about nine minutes. Um, I um, I get back and um, at 19 years sober, two years without an AA meeting. I've got an apartment. I've got a. I was able to. I spent two years. I had money, and I I said I'm going to try and satisfy the human ego. <laughs> Absolutely impossible. Right? You know, I'm at the Monaco Grand Prix, right? <laughs> I'm skiing uh, the uh, I'm skiing the Matterhorn <laughs> in Switzerland. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to the Baja 500. I'm I had I did everything I could possibly want to do, right? Me, 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 right? Letting a kid loose in an ice cream factory, right? <laughs> For two years, and at the end of that, I was bankrupt. And uh, was with a, a young woman that had no idea, you know, the hell that I was about to unleash. And I said to her, uh, I said, why don't we go get a drink? And she's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that didn't go so well. So um, within uh, one week, no, within two weeks, um, I'd been up for about three or four days. And um, I walked into the bedroom and it felt like someone came in behind me with a sledgehammer and hit me in the back of the head and everything started spinning and I fell down uh, on the bed and uh, she got on top of me with a phone and she was going to call the 911. I was like, don't do that because I had paraphernalia around and alcohol and all this stuff and I didn't want to get into trouble. And uh, I knew I was in trouble because I have 27 years of experience in Alcoholics Anonymous working and helping people, right? And trying to work the steps and here I am, I'm drunk and high. And so I go down to the local clubhouse and I'm terrified that my friends will find out, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm, so I try and get sober at this little clubhouse, get 30 days. <laughs> and this is what I call this, um, blowing up every single stupid saying in Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, um, I've never met anybody who got on their hands and knees in the morning and asked God to keep them sober and then got on their hands and knees at night and said, thank you that it's ever gone out. Well, I did that. <laughs> Wait, that was one of the first ones. Because if you hate God and know that God hates you, you're going to take every silly, this too shall pass, first things first, live and let live, you know, all those, you're going to destroy all those, right? Because I'm now actively drinking again. And uh, finally, I called up my friends in Southern California and I said, help. And uh, that's when I got reintroduced to uh, Laguna Beach Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was when um, I, I proceeded to put on a human debris show for uh, a year and a half. I had seven relapses. Each one of those only lasted about a week. And then I come right back to AA. So I'd get I get uh, 60 days, 90 days, never got more than about six months. I went to all the old timers. I worked the steps with all the old timers. And just as soon as they would finish, I would go back to drinking. I, I could not get rid of the obsession. Some of the highlights of those seven relapses and the last one, I will tell you, I did die. I, I know I died. Um, that's why I've, it's just amazing that I'm talking to you because I don't, I'm not actually alive anymore. Um, but um, some of the highlights of that were, um, I remember, um, 
you know, I need about three days to go on a good run. And I made the mistake of only getting a motel room for one night. And I remember they, they kicked me out of there and I was driving and I knew I was in a lot of trouble and I went into a blackout and I guess what happened was I had a backpack with a gallon of vodka in the back of it. And I crawled out of the car on my hands and knees up onto some lady's front lawn. And I was crying and screaming that I used to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and was rolling around on her front lawn with vodka. I left the cap off. It was spilling all over me. And instead of her calling the police, she called an ambulance and paid for me to go to the hospital. That was just one example. Another one was um, I realized that they were playing with the drugs in Southern California. The, the gangs were. So I bought a one-way plane ticket to Medellin, Colombia to get closer to the source down there. That ended up in the I ended up down there in their hospital down there and in convulsions. And I still have a little uh, tweak uh, when I try and get sleep from the stuff that happened to me down there. Um, but, but something magical happened because on the last, uh, I got about four minutes to get to wrap this up. What happened on the last um, um, go around is um, I went to the hospital and uh, I said, I'm not okay. And they took me back to the little treatment center had, that had been trying to help me over the past year and a half. Um, and, uh, and they said, there's nothing more we can do for you. And, and I was beyond human aid. And if you're here tonight and you're beyond human aid, <laughs> miracles do happen because um, I had taken uh, about $10,000 uh, down to Mexico, and I wrote a little suicide note, and I left it in my apartment with my 90-day coin, and I, I wrote it to my kids, and I said I tried my best, and I went down there, and um, on about the third day, I was not feeling well, and so I did some more of that stuff, and I remember I sat on the bed, and my eyes filled with red, and um, inside, what I saw was like the inside of a cathedral, and blood was running down the walls and there was like these championship banners that you would see at like a football stadium. Like, you know, we won this year, we won that, but it was everything I'd ever done wrong since birth. And I knew I was in hell and I knew I would never get out of there. And uh, I woke up on my back naked in this motel room, um, like a cockroach with my hand and my feet in the air. And um, my brother rescued me and took me to the hospital. And then they put me in a mental institution um, and that's where the locks are on the outside. <laughs> and, um, after a while they put in me, they put me, there was four different wings in there The I will kill you. I might kill you. I could kill you. And then just the alcoholics. <laughs> and they put me in with the, I could kill you for a couple of days. And then eventually they just put me in with the regular alcoholics. And I, I got out of there and I went and I had my last drink. I went to the local bar that night and I, um, and this is, was three years ago. My sobriety day is 520. 18. God, I hope it's my last drink. And uh, woke up the next morning and this kid, you know, you never know who's going to help you. This kid in our program that not a lot of people, you know, really would say, oh, I want to make sure he comes and hangs out with me, right? He's kind of like just a, a disconnect person, right? He calls me up one morning, that morning that I woke up and he's like, uh, this is day one. He goes, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm in a lot of trouble. I just got out of the mental institution. Come over here. So he came over and he took me to the meeting and that's where I walked up to the craziest person in all of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've ever met. The only person I've ever met like him was a guy by the name of Clancy Emmislin. And Clancy could take people out of mental institutions and he would build such a constrictive box that if you stepped outside of that, he would like he, you're, he would say, call me at eight o'clock. And uh, if you called him at 881, he would say, you're late and hang up on you, right? He just, he built in, he could take people out of mental institutions and make them productive, active members of society, as long as they stayed active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I asked this gentleman, Rob H., to be my sponsor. And I asked him because I had seen the fruit of his tree. He had helped people, you know, that had been in high-speed chases with people on freeways that didn't exist. You know, he tried to kill himself twice. And, and, uh, and so he, 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 he agreed to manage my life for me. And he, um, he started asking me to apply spiritual principles in my life. You know, the 12 steps, each one of those has a spiritual principle, you know, honesty, um, 
brotherly love, right? Humility, right? All those. And he asked me to start applying those. And it was like, if you've ever sanded um, with a heavy grit sandpaper on a rough piece of wood, it's like, and you start, it's like, (laughs) exactly what it was like with him asking me to apply spiritual principles in my life. Because my ego fought it at every, and I remember he asked me, he said, are you willing to to go to any length to stay sober and are you teachable? And as every newcomer says to their sponsor, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'll do anything, I'll do anything, right? Well, that lasted three days (laughs) until I remember I was talking to him on the phone and, uh, and I was telling him about some idiot that took my seat at an AA meeting, (laughs) put my keys down there and he took my seat and he, uh, he said, oh, no problem. We're just going to apply the spiritual principle of brotherly love. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, you're going to call and apologize to that person. And I was like, and in that moment, I realized that I was either going to die an alcoholic death or apply spiritual principles. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. You know, there's a hidden line in the um, in uh, a vision for you. And they're talking about that real corker that beat up a couple of nurses, right? And they, Bill and Bob go into the hospital and they say, you know, do you got anybody that we can help? And, um, and she says, yeah, we've got a real corker. And they said, we'll put him in a bed for us and we'll be up. And then there's this secret line that's totally out of place. It says, for the application of spiritual principles in such cases is not as well known as it is now. Now that was written in 1939. And that's what my sponsor, has done. He's given me a treatment for alcoholism that um, is the application of spiritual principles. And so in that moment, I, I was trapped. It was either death or apply spiritual principles. And I'm so glad that that happened because um, to the best of my ability, he's been, uh, I, I ended up apologizing to that person. And after I apologized, he said, call me, you know, call me back after you apologize. So I called him back and I had this curious sensation after I apologized Uh, I felt a little bit of peace. And that's all I was looking for in the alcohol or Andar or what other stuff. I just wanted a little bit of peace. And I find that every time I apply a spiritual principle that produces that, that precious quality of humility, God's grace can enter into that and, and expel that obsession and give me peace. And that's really all I wanted. Right. So, um, you know, if you get anything about letting go, (laughs) out of that you might be able to but i'm uh, i'm profoundly grateful thank you i've gone a little bit over tonight no soul saved after 10 30 as we say in southern california um but um thank you very much and uh and that's that's all i have to say tonight oh, oh thank you derek so 